I will say to us this morning, it's altogether appropriate to do what we have done. It is altogether not only appropriate but necessary for the community of faith, for those that are called to be salt and light into the world, to let our light shine before men. It is altogether appropriate for us to take pause, to think, to reflect, to spend a moment or two just dealing with the difficulty of it all. And as we have just sung, God is sovereign. That even in the worst possible times, He is there. He has never left us, nor has He forsaken us. He has never turned His back on us, nor will He. He is in the midst of everything we find ourselves in, both good and bad. And we take comfort in that moment. And so thank you to everyone who has participated this morning, whether it is our praise team and Josue as they have led us in music that helps us reflect and think. Whether it was Hannah as she called us to that moment of silence to stop, to pause, to reflect. Whether it was Curtis, who in his own simple way gave one of the greatest sermons you'll ever want to hear. Or in the time of communion where Alan and June called us to draw near to Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's who we are called to be. That is the purpose of the church. So I say welcome to Skillman this morning. And we are continuing in a series that Jake started last week on the seven deadly sins that we are calling sinning like a Christian. On this board, you have seven words that are positives of the seven sins that we're going to be discussing over the next seven weeks. These words are good words, fulfillment, desire, driven, intensity, promotion, rest, need. They are words that we look at and we go, those are good and positive things. I want us to focus this morning on this one, the word intensity. My wife has a nickname for me. It is this. She calls me Mr. Intensity. You want to know why? From everything that I do, from the way that I brush my teeth to the way that I comb my hair to the way that I go about my job, I have a bit of passion about it. Let me tell you something. There is nothing in the world that stokes me any more than to see unbelievers come to Christ. There is intensity about that for me. It is not something I play with. It is not something that I will ever give anything but full credence to because it's important to me. But here is the thing about these words. And here is the thing that ends up happening when we go to the to the nth degree 
And we let something that is good develop into something that is not so good. And when intensity goes to its toughest spot, it becomes anger. Uncontrolled anger is not a good thing. Do we really need to be reminded of that today? What does it look like when anger is taken to the nth degree? On Thursday evening, we saw it in real ways. It came into our living rooms. We've been watching it now for over 60 hours as people have talked about what that moment did and how that moment shaped us and what anger does to us. Listen, we understand the power of anger. We do. We have classes called anger management classes. There's a television show called anger management. I even found a film clip, if you will, with Jack Nicholson and Adam Sandler about anger management. Some of you may have seen that particular movie. See, sin is deadly. Anger can be a deadly thing. Paul says something about what sin does to us and how anger can affect us. In Romans 6.23, he says, For the wages of sin is what? It's death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a passage that deals with eternity. And it deals with the eternal nature of what happens when sin runs rampant in our life. But it also is a passage that deals with the fact that when you and I come to Christ... Regardless of when that is, we begin living the eternal life in that moment. And that sin has an effect on us in that moment. It may have eternal consequences, but it certainly will have temporal consequences. It will take us. It will twist us. It will move us. And part of our journey is to learn how to live in the here and now and yet maintain this eternal focus. A couple of weeks ago, I went to Nashville. Nashville is my hometown. I spent 24 years growing up there. And every time I go back, I have this feeling of nostalgia. In fact, I drove into the Green Hills area of Nashville. If you know anything about the city, you know that area. I lived at 1483 Woodmont Boulevard. And I drove by my house. The house I grew up with, grew up in, in the 60s and the 70s. The house that my dad and my grandparents and I all shared together. And as I looked at that house, I was reminded of what it was like because, believe it or not, this was even the days before color TV. Everything was on a black and white television. And I remember sitting in my granddad's lap and watching the Andy Griffith show. Now, let me ask you a question. How many people in this room, this is a show of hands, audience participation moment, actually saw the Andy Griffith show in real time when it was a, look around, me too, we've just dated ourselves, we're really that old, right? Lots of us have seen it because of TV land and other reruns that have come throughout the years, but there were iconic characters on The Andy Griffith Show. 
Here is one that was particularly great for me. Take a look at this one. Anybody remember him? Otis Campbell. Otis Campbell was the town drunk. And I mean, he seemed to get plastered every single day. And here was his normal reaction when he got plastered. He would walk into the the courthouse where Andy and Barney had their office. He would stumble in. He would walk down the steps. He would go and pick up the keys off the wall that was between the two cells that they had in Mayberry. He would open the door. He would go in. He would then lock himself in the cell and hang the keys back up on the hook that was there between the two cells. I find that interesting. They didn't force him to be there. They didn't lock the door. He locked himself in. See, when we look at this board, and as you see it filled up over the next seven weeks, and when we come to these sins, it's like self-incarceration. We pick up the keys. We lock ourselves in the cell. That's what it looks like. Anger is rampant. Anger is complex. Anger is incredibly dangerous. Do we need to point that out on this Sunday morning? We see what it looks like when it goes to the nth degree. But here is the thing I want us to pay attention to this morning. While we know what the extremes look like, Every person in this room is familiar with anger. And if you're honest, there is this little bit of twinge of satisfaction when somebody who's hurt you gets their comeuppance. That's my grandmother's word, by the way. When they get there, they get what they deserve. Don't you get that little moment of satisfaction? There was a woman who found out that her husband had been cheating on her. And here's how she responded. I want you to see this. She decided just to put a bunch of axes in the middle of his Audi as a way to remind him that this was not a good thing. It reminded me of that Carrie Underwood little country song that says, I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive. I carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights. I slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe the next time he'll think before he cheats. We understand that feeling. And yet Frederick Beekner will say to us, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, 
to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you were given and the pain you are giving back in many ways. It's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. I want you to contemplate that. But I want you to juxtapose it against what Jesus did. Did Jesus ever get angry? Somebody just say, yes, he did. We have illustrations, examples. We know it actually happened. So how do we handle anger in a way that is God-honoring as opposed to a way that just takes us to the nth degree or causes us just to be burdened by it? How do we deal with it in ways that actually make some sense? Paul, in the book of Ephesians, verse chapter 4, verse 26, makes this statement. He says, be angry. Now, I'm going to finish that statement. But I want you to understand that's a complete sentence. Be angry. Anger itself is not the deadly part. Be angry. Anger has a neutrality to it. It's kind of like a crowbar. If I need to get inside a house and I will take a crowbar, I can use it to open a window if that's what I need to do in order to get in. I can actually use it in a way that has some productivity to it. Or I can take that same crowbar and I can smash every window in that house until I find a way to get in in the way that I want to. It's all about my application and all about the way that I use it. It's what we do with it. See, here's the thing about church and Christians. See, we would in some ways like the world to think, All we do is look angelic, hold each other's hand, and sing kumbaya all the time. Turn to your neighbor and say, but I've been angry at you before. Go ahead, it'll do you some good. I've been angry at you before. Husbands and wife, don't get so caught up in that moment because it could take us some time to work through that. The truth is we have. The phrase, the anger of the Lord appears 18 times in the Old Testament alone. There are things to be angry about. There are things that are reasons that we should be angry. I've had people tell me they react to things out of righteous anger. Anybody ever heard the term righteous anger? It's a perspective But let me tell you this, righteous anger never gives any of us the permission to act in in an unrighteous way in the way that we treat or deal with other people. Righteous anger does not give us the permission to be judgmental and, uh, and unloving toward another person who is made in the image of God. See, I would say 
a lot of Christians do a lot of damage with righteous anger. We take people, we beat them up with it. I found this picture from the Prohibition Movement when they were trying to do away with alcohol. Let's see that one if we could. I want you to look at that. It's a group of ladies saying, lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. I have kind of a snarky thing to say about that picture. Would that deter anybody, honestly? (laughs) Take a gander at that thing. But who wants to follow somebody who's an ultimatum giving, do it my way or the highway kind of person? That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, be angry. Anger, you're going to, it's going to happen and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That translation of give no opportunity to the devil is the idea, don't give the devil a room in your house. Don't give him a platform from which he can continue to destroy and upset your life all the way through. So how do we deal with our anger? I'm going to lump us into two extremes this morning and understand that sometimes we fit in one or the other and usually we fit in kind of a connection of the two. And the way that I want to lump these extremes is by the use of some animals. Here's the first one. What is that? It's a skunk. What do skunks do? They spray you. They spew. Have you ever been around somebody that when they become angry, they just start spewing? And you're there trying to work your way through some of that. It is not easy to do. Now, I have to tell you, I'm somewhat intimately acquainted with that little animal. So let me say it this way. My name is Chuck. I have a new life in Christ, and I struggle with being a skunk at times. (laughs) Because I do. Sometimes when I get upset, sometimes when I get angry, I will sit there and I will go back and spew. Here's the problem with that. The person that does it, after they've had that moment of spewing... They sit back and they go, whew, I feel a lot better. (laughs) And they do. The only problem is the people who have been spewed upon not only don't feel better, but they are struggling with lots of different things and trying to process what this means. See, I want to say to those of us that are in the spew club, here's what scripture says. We're dumb. Now, that's my translation of this following scripture. But if you look at Proverbs 29, 11, it says, a fool, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Now, that's one group of people. 
So I have a second animal that I want us to take a look at that kind of represents the other extreme to this. Take a look at this guy. Who is he? He's a turtle. What do turtles do when they are dealing with things in their environment they don't particularly like? They draw it all in. Everything comes inside. Here's what I want to say to us. We got some turtles in the room. You don't spew. You are offended by something and you just draw it in. And you keep drawing it in. In fact, you walk up to a turtle and you say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. They're also just great liars. They're not fine. There's nothing about them that's fine, but they're going to tell you that they're fine because, after all, they don't want to really share this thing that's going on. Here's the problem with a stewer, because that's what turtles are. They stew over everything. And as we stew about things, there is that moment when you, as an innocent bystander, will walk by and you will say something to a stewer That's not a big deal. But they will light up like fireworks on the 4th of July. And it just comes flying out. And the stewer now becomes a spewer. And all of those things that they have held back... They Listen, there is the scripture in 1 Corinthians 13 that says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Stewards can tell you everything you've ever done, the date you did it, the way you did it, the clothes you were wearing, what you were eating at the time. They can give you the litany of everything that you have done that is offensive to them, and they don't miss a beat. My point is this. We have those extremes... And yet we find ourselves sometimes in the middle of both of those things. So how do we handle it? James gives some great advice in James 1 verses 19 through 20 when he says these words. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be quick to hear. And slow to speak. Second confession of the morning for me. I'm terrible at that. Because here's what my deal is. If I'm in an intense moment with you, and you're telling me something that I don't particularly like to hear, here's what's going on in my mind. I'm thinking, okay, let me think of what just star-studded comeback I can have that puts the end to that, that just lays waste to all of those little moments. And I love to get the last word. Now, before all you start judging me, let's be honest. We got a few other people in this room that deals with the same kind of thing. So here's what I started doing. I brought it just because I wanted you to know that it really is a real deal. This is a journal I carry with me everywhere I go, literally everywhere I go. 
And what I've started doing when I know that I'm going to have a particularly difficult conversation, I make sure I have this with me. And instead of trying to formulate a response, I write down what it is that you are saying. And then I start asking qualifying questions. This is what I heard you say. Is this what you meant? And I work my way through it that way. Here's what that's done for me. It's helped me start to be quick to hear, slow to speak. My grandmother had a great saying. She said, you never have to take back anything you didn't say. There's truth there, right? I don't have to take back those things. And we need to process it. It It is not only a skill, it is something we have to be willing to start to do. See, Proverbs 10, 19 says it this way. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. That's what it means to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And I know some of you are looking at me right now going, hey, Chuck, this isn't brain surgery. Quick to listen, good. Slow to speak, bad. Becoming angry to the point that I just kind of blow, really bad. What's the big deal? See, this is not an information problem. It's never been an information problem. It is an application and a motivation problem. What are we going to do with this information that both Paul and James gives us about how to deal with anger? And here's how it's going to kind of look. James closes that section in James 1 with a couple of things that he says to us that we really really need to pay attention to. James 1 verses 22 through 24 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Listen, you're going to walk out of this building today. You're going to have heard at least a sermon about Ephesians chapter 4, James chapter 1, and how you deal with anger. And then on your way to lunch, there's going to be that idiot that cuts you off in traffic. Here's my question. Are you going to forget what you look like? See, what's true of us was also true of Jesus' disciples. You have to remember, he called a rather ragtag group to come and to follow after him. There was that inner circle of four, which was Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That inner circle was even pared down to three when it was James, John, and Peter and James and John were a part of a religious sect known as the Zealots. The Zealots were unhappy the Romans were in their land and they were committed to do whatever was necessary to get the Romans out of Palestine and to return the sovereignty of the nation of Israel to itself. And they would do whatever they had to do in order for that to occur. 
These two zealots, James and John, were known as sons of thunder. Now here's what I want you to think about. In Luke chapter 9, there is this story of Jesus kind of detouring into Samaria. And when he gets into Samaria, he comes into this town, and this town does not receive him at all. In fact, they kind of push back. How do you think that went over with sons of thunder? Luke chapter 9, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? How's that one? Okay, they don't want to, they don't want to engage with Jesus. Let's just nuke the place. They don't want to be around us fine and dandy. Let's be sure that the the earth is scorched and nobody's going to be here anymore. I want you to think about those two sons of thunder. And I want you to think about what happened with them over the course of history. John, one of the ones, thunder boy, who says, I want to call down fire from heaven becomes in the early days of the church to be known as the apostle of love. It is John who says these words. So we have come to know and to believe that the love, of, the, the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Call down fire. God is love. Whoever is, abides in love abides in God and God in him. The Apostle Paul pulls Christians out of their homes, murders them as Saul the Pharisee, He has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And things are different for him. See, i got to ask you. When you think of the dichotomy between John the son of thunder and and John the apostle of love, I ask myself this question. Did this guy take a pit stop in Colorado and start smoking the sacred herb? Is that what mellowed him out? Or is there something deeper? See, I think when you look at John and you look at Paul, the striking thing was they had been with Jesus. It is Paul who said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4, verses 31 through 32. And in case you've forgotten, it is Paul who wrote those words from a Roman prison. If anyone had a right to be angry, Paul did. And we tend to get angry when we do not think we are being treated fairly. And Paul was never treated fairly. And yet he says... Be tender-hearted, 
forgiving as Christ forgave you. And we like that. We respect that. We just don't always do that. It's Philip Yancey who wrote, Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. I want you to hear that again. Christians get very angry at other Christians who sin differently than they do. I've experienced that. I will tell you, two weeks ago I went to Lipscomb to speak at their summer celebration, their time of lectureship, if you will. It's what ACU does in September with their summit program. And see, to go back and to do that is a big deal for me because I'm a Lipscomb lifer. I started there in the fifth grade, went to junior high, high school, went across the campus and started going to college there. In the summer, I played tennis on those tennis courts every single day. I played ball on those ball fields, played basketball in those gyms. And see, to, to, to go back and to spend time there means something to me. It was there that I was formed. I came to Christ more as a result of that Christian school experience than I did my church experience. Because my church experience was very diverse and was kind of hit or miss. But that school, every single day, called me to something bigger and called me to a relationship with Jesus Christ. It formed me. It was there that I was called to ministry and decided, you know what? This is what I'm going to do because I had professors who would stop me and say to me, look, this is something you ought to do. This is something that's inside of you. This is a fire you have got you need to pay attention to. All those things. It was there that I won the Good Pastor Preaching Award as a senior at Lipscomb College. And see, to be invited to go back to that after my background, in my sin that has brought so much reproach upon the church and has hurt, that that was a big deal. The topic they gave me to speak on, David, Bathsheba, and my struggle with secret sin. Oh, my. (laughs) Right? Two minutes before I was to teach that class, the lectureship director came up and he said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. I stepped out. He said, hey, last night I got an email about you from one of the other speakers on the program. They said, we don't believe that you should be allowed to speak here. We don't think it's right that you speak here. And they gave their reasons why. And he, and I looked at him and I said, do you need me to step out? Because if you do, I will. I don't want to do anything to hurt this school. I don't want anything to hurt this lectureship. I don't want to be a part of any of that. If you need me to step aside, I will gladly do so. He 
said, no, I just felt like you need to know. Well, I had 45 seconds to kind of capture my thoughts and to go and teach my class. I did. After it was over with, I did something I've never done in my past. I could not wait to get off that campus at least for a few minutes. I couldn't wait. I needed the perspective of that moment. And I started, I, I pulled that journal out and I started writing. And, and when those moments happen for me, here's what normally occurs. The first wave is a wave of absolute shame. Look at what you have done. The second wave is a wave of anger. What? Who are you? And I'm sitting there and I'm writing all that down. And I don't know why I was reminded of it, but I was. I was reminded of Mel Gibson's cameo appearance in The Passion of the Christ. I have that. You see that. That's Mel Gibson's hand holding the spike that's going to be driven into actor Jim Caviezel's wrist. He's playing Christ in that moment. And here's what I got to thinking. Because Gibson said, the reason I wanted to be the one to hold the spike was I wanted everybody to know it wasn't Romans and Jews 2,000 plus years ago that killed Jesus. It's my sin. And the anger of that moment is represented by the things that I have done. Take them out of the equation. Let me grab that spike because it represents everything that I've done to offend him. And I got to thinking about my own sin. And I got to thinking about those words of the Apostle Paul. Be tenderhearted, kind, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. And in that moment, I got to wrap my own hand around this spike. I will tell you, that's a showstopper moment. I can get mad at people. Or I can remember that Christians get mad at other Christians who sin differently than they do. And I can do what John and Paul and what Jesus had modeled before them. And I can choose to forgive. So here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to think about Thursday night. I don't want you to forget Thursday night. I want that to be burned inside your psyche. I want you to understand the great racial divide that we have in this country, the anger that is going on, and the big problems that we've got. Please do not let that escape you. And as the body of Christ and as believers in Christ, let's not let that be something that we do nothing about. Let us be the ministers of reconciliation we have been called to be. Let us be the people that God says are salt and light. And you step into the community and you make the community better. That is who we are called to be. What we cannot do is sit on our hands and do nothing. We can't just pray for Curtis Steiger. We have got to actively go about the business of making a kingdom difference in the world. Amen? And if we don't, shame on us. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss either. Don't make it about Thursday night. Take a moment this morning. Wrap your hand around the spike. Because just like it was my sin, and just like it was Mel Gibson's sin, it is all of our sins that stapled him to a cross. All of us. And when we start having that perspective, maybe we don't get quite as angry as quickly. As elder couples gather around the room, as the prayer of the people tables are set up for you to spend some time with, as Jake and I are down front, this is an opportunity for you to let the Lord work. Won't you do so as we stand and sing?